welcome to the Talent Equals podcast. Thanks for joining us again. Now, all of you who have been listening um, for some time now may know that our show is all about shaping and reshaping how you define talent. And we do that set against the backdrop of the fintech and insurtech industry. But really, the lessons that we focus on are universal in their potential for whoever is listening, for wherever you're working, no matter the sector. And in today's episode, we're really going to be focusing on this idea of change, change and growth as leaders. Because it's so important that as a leader, to grow, to develop, that we have to be able to show vulnerability. We have to be able to go and look inwards and to find the places where we should grow from. And that takes compassion, compassion for ourselves, compassion for the pain and experiences we've had which are affecting the way that we behave today, both in our private life, but also in our professional life. So in today's episode, we're going to meet a fantastic teacher, Dr. Sarah Hill, who will introduce us to a very important concept of childhood stories. Sarah and I will be exploring, amongst other things, concepts such as imperfect love and how imperfect love and childhood stories affect the way that we lead as adults in high-stake or high-stress situations. Sarah's work focuses on coaching CEOs and senior leaders from all over the world and understanding exactly why they are behaving in certain ways. It's through this model of childhood stories that so much improvement in our style and abilities as a leader can be achieved. And yes, it can be a difficult journey to start, but there are real treasures lying on the other side for leaders looking to live a more balanced life where the people around them can experience the full and real authentic version of them as a leader. But all of this requires anybody listening to have compassion for themselves and to allow some vulnerability in their life. That vulnerability and compassion really is the doorway so much great development. Sarah's most recent book, Where Did You Learn to Behave Like That, gives a guide to coaches interested in working on this topic with leaders. But honestly, I found it as a great guide to this topic if you're just interested in some self-development. Sarah Hill holds a Doctor of Philosophy and a Bachelor's in Communication. She has taught at the Syed, Henley and Harvard Business Schools and is a visiting professor at the William James College in Boston. Sarah is a thoughtful, kind, very experienced practitioner, so I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And without further ado, I give you Sarah Hill. Dr. Sarah Hill, welcome to Talent Equals. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's really good to be here. Wonderful. So I want to dive in with a question. How do stressful events of our childhood affect our leadership behavior under stress? Great question. It's, um, it starts with a trigger, really. So when we get triggered, and the trigger can be anything, and it will be uniquely personal too. Uh, so what might trigger me might not trigger you at all. So it starts with that trigger in the environment. The stakes then start to go up pretty quickly. So what we know about um, leadership under pressure is that there's this massive escalation that happens. 
And so as a result of that and the biological changes that are happening um, as a result of that stress response, we start to react out of what we would call shadow behaviour. So that's the behaviour that we're least proud of, um, that we might even feel some shame about afterwards or some embarrassment or awkwardness or just wish that we had responded with more command rather than that lashing out. Um, So um, the shadow behaviour can be a version of lashing out verbally, but it could also manifest in terms of becoming silent or retreating, sort of being um, physically present but emotionally absent, just at the moment when we're needed the most. Mm. The team needs us the most or the context needs us the most. And so in those moments, what we would say is that the childhood story of imperfect love is in the room in that moment Mm. of reactivity, of high-stakes reactivity. And you can almost see the child enter the room you know, as that reaction starts to unfold. Um, You only have to Google um, celebrities or politicians under pressure and you'll see all sorts of film clips that will come up where you can see what I'm describing. And it is almost like the adult... um, becomes more childlike in the reaction. So mm. in those moments, the leader's not in command of themselves. Mm. So it's this, this shadow reality, this shadow play, which we're triggered through a series of unique or everyday occurrences, which have a unique effect on us yes. because of the stories and experiences we've laid down as children. Yes. And, and you specifically talked about imperfect love. Yes. So what is imperfect love so imperfect love comes from it um from david Cantor, who's the theorist around structural dynamics who first talked about childhood story and the in the importance of it in a leadership context and in a behavioral context and imperfect love is anything from the smallest moments of disappointment loss betrayal abandonment um, right the way through to the gravest experiences of abuse, which so many people um, have ex- do experience um, in their lifetimes, um, more than we might imagine. Um, so it's there's quite a big spectrum or big uh, range of um, of experiences that come under that phrase "imperfect love." Mm. I love the. Um, example of um, if you picture being um, a, a parent being in a department store say um, with their young child who's five six seven years old I've got one of those yeah (laughs) (laughs) and momentarily the child loses sight of the parent Mm. and in that moment the child is lost Mm. that is a moment of imperfect love they're lost they're almost abandoned there can be a sort of almost like a panic like where's the where's where's my dad where's my mum where's the where's the parent mm. um and of course what the child remembers is that they were found more so than that they were lost mm. but it's an example of how small a moment um of imperfect love um mm. how, how small that can be mm. so the childhood story is a tapestry of moments like those mm. that's a great example because i have a like clear memories as many people do where 
they lose their parent and they tug on the, the they, they turn around thinking it's their mother or mm. their, and they say mum in the shop and they look up and mm. it's not their parent but their mother <laughs> yes. and it's like this big feeling of like oh my god who are you um mm. maybe to that imperfect love and i still remember those instances yes. i got very clear and that's like a minor situation my mom was probably just standing the other side of me and i i just turned around yes um so that's really interesting and, and i think so i can imagine and how a parent though when they lose their child and i'm thinking when my child disappears around the corner which is usually because she's going to the magazine section <laughs> in the supermarket um that i also have some of those emotions that are triggered right yes. is that an example yes. where i may be triggered in that situation with the same type of reactions or same type of laid down stories that i would have as a child potentially yes because mm. um because for someone else, for example, they may be very comfortable with the child just wandering around the supermarket and they would just carry on shopping. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's no big deal. <laughs> mm. um, and they would just say, uh, or they would just know that they'd meet the child at the, at the front door <laughs> um, <laughs> on the way out or something. So it's, um, it's fascinating how what's high stakes for one person just it, mm. it really isn't for another um mm. and I, I like the example that we're exploring too because it's such a small moment yeah. but then if you start to build those or add to them so a grandparent dies and it and and the experience of that really has a massive impact on the child or um I can remember being dragged out in front of the classroom aged about 12 by a maths teacher and I just could not perform. I could not do what the math teacher was asking me to do. Mm. Now, fast forward, um, and um, if I get asked and put on the spot to stand up and present something, that 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 experience of being of the feeling humiliated by the teacher can get triggered. It can suddenly come into the room if I'm not in command of myself in mm. those moments and really reminding myself, hang on a minute, that was the past. That's not now. <laughs> it's different now. And you characterise that as imperfect love as well, even that that music class experience. Yes, yes. The, um, um, it, it, the uh, experiences of imperfect love can come from anywhere, so in any context. So, you know, school would be a big context mm. for many people um and um but also you know the extended family community friend friendship circles and so on um any any part of the environment or context that the child um experiences and i think it's also important to say that when we talk about childhood story the age range that um we're talking about is birth right the way through adult to adolescence so we're talking about right the way through to the age of around 23 24 mm -hmm. so that includes if you think that includes university college experiences early mm -hmm. work experiences early leadership experiences um all of those experiences are become part of that tapestry oh. which um can get triggered in an unhelpful way when we're in when we're in high high stakes. I think that's an important definition actually that mm. that the childhood period enters quite a long like duration there. Yes. But it's also interesting that as I was hearing that and I was reflecting on my own my own framework I was bringing to this I was going well surely it's these childhood stories to do with the parents but mm. of course I mean so much of the childhood experience is outside of the parent-child mm. relationship. I mean, mm. I think about my own 
childhood mm. and think of those formative moments where I was out with friends in the woods or I was, you know, getting into mischief, um, doing something I shouldn't have been doing. And that's like a, a, a story that's been laid down. And then in my, my, like my teenage years, like 15, 16, 17, 18, where I moved out and I had a, from 16 and I remember those, those are big formative years. So yeah, I can, yes. it's easy probably to, to be drawn straight to the, the parent child relationship. Yes. Um, and I, um, I wonder actually if that's why maybe this parent-child relationship, maybe why I went straight there, maybe people do. Do you think people most of the time think that, Sarah? Do they most think that's, that's what we're talking about in childhood stories? Yes, I, I do. And um, in some ways it's, it, it's, um, it makes the, the term problematic. So mm. um, sometimes um, I will talk more about formative experience. You, you um, just used that term just a moment ago. Mm. And... Um, formative experience because the reason why we focus on that that age range right the way through adolescence is because it's the identity forming phase of development and um the identity is still forming right right the way through adolescence um and that's why all of those experiences have the impact that they do because they are during that those or during those phases of psychological development and the identity forming phases mm. Yeah, that, I find that uh, I find this idea of like development and our structure as individuals quite fascinating. And I, I'll draw a sort of rather pithy comment that I remember hearing, and um, I think it's one of these cliches that actually rings true. Is like, give give me a male entrepreneur, and I will give you a, a male with daddy issues, and and. <laughs> mm. And I remember seeing, hearing that someone said that to me at a thing event, and I was like, well, "That's probably bloody true, actually." And I'm, actually, <laughs> I interviewed, I've interviewed a few younger CEOs, and I remember a key CEO in my podcast, um, Julian Taker, who's the CEO of a um, unicorn billion valued uh, insurtech, and he said something similar. You know, mm. my own daddy issues. He talked about, and I got to yeah. be honest with you. I mean, I'm I'm an entrepreneur, and I'm from a house where my, my parents are divorced as well. And I keep going through my friendships and I wonder about these key things. And so, so that draws to me like this idea that even these, there is there, there's good even in the bad experiences we have in our childhood stories. And how close is our dysfunction to our genius? And how do you work with that? I love that question because um, it's so close. <laughs> There's almost like a sort of paper thin <laughs> um, difference between the two, and that's what's so wonderful. Actually, is that um, is that the the experiences that um, that we have of imperfect love that we had can be such a force for good. Mm. Um, I, I'm only who I am today <laughs> um, uh, because of the range of experiences that I had as a child. And, um, you know, I grew up in a family where, uh, with, um, where I was abused and uh, both in the family and outside of the family system. Um, and that has made me um, an extraordinary advocate for uh, working with people to reduce harm to, you know, that, that I would say if you were to ask me what my kind of core purpose has been in all the work that I've done in my career, it has been, or it's had a, a purpose around reducing harm, reducing mm. the harm that happens um, in the inter in you know when we interact with one another, for example. So um, 
that's come out of a pretty tough mm. childhood and a pretty tough set of um, experiences. Um, it's what makes me effective and good and so on. But when I'm under pressure, that's when um, you might see some of my shadow behavior. So you would probably see me, um, I'm more like, I'm one of those people that's more likely to retreat when I'm in the face of extreme opposition. Mm. So in that in that moment, the child of story is coming into the room. And if I'm not careful, I mean, it doesn't happen so much these days because I've really done the work on myself. But in the past, I would do a lot of work with teams to bring the disturbance into the room. And just at the moment when it was there uh, in my coaching work, um, I'd start to retreat and back off. <laughs> mm. um, uh, you know, it's completely contrary to the purpose of what I was doing. <laughs> um, I find that interesting because mm. thank you for sharing but I mean and your your story you do share in your book um where did you learn to behave like that and it's I thought it was a a great example of courage in you showing your own vulnerability to hopefully encourage others to come forward with their story um and work on it um so I'll I'll leave listeners to to explore your book and how you introduce your story and 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 explain it within the context of your work. Um, but I think just sort of poking a little bit more at this, because, you know, I I wonder if, and I have remember hearing once that, you know, on a, on a show talking about these, you know, exemplary leaders, taking someone like, let's, let's take the archetype at the moment, like Elon Musk, right? Mm -hmm. Clearly, he is dysfunctional in some ways. And you read his mm. a biography of him, you know, you can understand that in so many ways his behavior is dysfunctional, yet it is brilliant in other in other facets of his life. Um, and I and again, I come back to I wonder if these folks sometimes, and, and I've heard this of exemplary performers, don't want to mess around with themselves because they they fear losing that edge. Mm. But the example you gave though is that that fine paper like difference, right, where you realize actually the dysfunction. Mm is no longer serving you mm. and no longer serving those around you. Mm. And so I wonder, it, is, it, is it a case of throwing out the, the genius with the dysfunction bathwater? I'm trying to butcher that one there. <laughs> or or is, is there a way to really, you know, to, to get a win-win here and, yeah, and improve ourselves without losing that edge? I, I think the win-win um, the is the genius alongside phenomenal knowledge and command of the self phenomenal insight and awareness of the self um the ability to change the nature of one's own discourse um and so on so to have um highly effective rich uh, relationships um with others and so on so that the so that the i mean there'll always be moments of dysfunction right <laughs> there'll always be moments of shadow behavior where if we're human beings they'll they'll those moments will always present themselves mm. but i think particularly in a leadership position don't don't we have a responsibility to be the best that we can be relationally and behaviorally as mm. well as um, being known for the genius that we bring um mm. as an entrepreneur or um, as a world leader, um, and so on. And if you if you read um, autobiographies or biographies about um, political leaders or celebrities and others, you'll see that many of them have a massive childhood story. 
Mm. Uh, you, you can see it poking through. And more and more uh, people are, are, are writing about that. You know, everyone from like Alan Davis, the comedian, um, uh, Bruce Springsteen and his biography, he's really in touch with his childhood story and the impact that that has had on his um, adult life for good and and not so good at times. There's a fantastic biography by um, Jeanette Winterson called Why Be Happy When You Could Be Normal. And <laughs> it's about her childhood story. Um, yeah. And again, you know, she's making the links between the childhood experience and the adult author mm. that she is today. Yeah, I love biographies for that reason. And I mean, the one, I, one that really struck me recently was Matthew McConaughey's Green Lights. And mm. I mean, in Many, I mean, his his mother and father, he explains, and it were were both were married to each other three times. That means they had to get divorced all of those times as well. And he opens with this scene where his mother breaks his father's nose with a phone or something across the and mm. and you're just left with like this sort of harrowing sense of like how on earth does Matthew McConaughey emerge as this fully rounded, hugely talented, and completely like interesting character which he is and and you realize that you know certainly as you do more work on the self and this idea of you know emergence and a meaning and experience to um, creation that we recognize that what we extrapolate from a situation is all about the meaning that we associate to that and how you associate meaning is through your perception and the mm. the, the tools that you're given mm. um and so any situation can be good or bad, right? Mm, yeah. Dependent on how you frame it. <laughs> yes. And um, I, I think, you know, the, one of the guests I had previously was um, a guy called Thomas Weddell-Weddlesborg, and he wrote a book called What's Your Problem? And this is all about reframing and problem solving. And I know this is slightly different, but in a way it's like, you know, his, his kind of blurb on his book is to solve your toughest problem, change the problems you solve. And, and I kind of wonder within story work, how with childhood story, you're actually going, well, let's take a look at that situation, but let's think about it in a different way. Let's ascribe a different set of meaning. Is is that a way that you approach that work? Yes. Um, I mean, it's. Um, I think the um, neuroscience is really helpful in this context. So this idea about neur neural pathways and how mm. um, the behavioral reactions, the behavior behaviors that we learn um, as a result of that those experiences of um, imperfect love, those childhood experiences, we have a set of neural pathways that are really well ingrained as adults. And mm. so we react in a, in a particular way. And the great thing is that you can, you can develop new neural pathways mm. um, so that the habitual response, which will, will have a protective element to it. So those um, shadow behaviors are a defensive protective mechanism which served the child well back then, but um, are not serving the adult well um, uh, in moments of high stakes, for example. So um, one way that we think about that in childhood story work is that um, you have the childhood experience, um, a set of old internal narratives get laid down about the self, um, opposing and being opposed is dangerous, could be one. Um, the only way to succeed is to push others out of the way. Um, there are hundreds of very mm. absolute statements about the self or about the the situation, um, which we describe as old internal narratives, old neural pathways getting activated, well-worn pathways. Um, the work to do is to lay down 
some new neural pathways by writing new internal narratives. Mm. So opposing being dangerous. Um, opposing is a an important, necessary uh, uh, behavioral skill. You know, that's the shift. And it sounds so so simple, and it, and it is really old to new. Mm. But it's not easy to make that transition, um, in part because those old internal narratives have um, kept us safe. They're part of our identity. You've used the word narrative, mm. childhood story, mm. um, pathways. And, it, and in your book, I know you also quoted a very famous storyteller or story thinker is Joseph Campbell and mm. um, you and he's famous for writing this hero of the thousand hero of a thousand faces this hero's journey and and I saw I and I, I hear this concept of story coming out and one of the previous guests I've had on my show was um, a, a gentleman called David Katz who started a firm called Plastic Bank and his whole premise is changing the story of plastic mm. and and I I'm also a great believer in the side that we can change the story of ourself and the meaning we have. So you also use journaling, right? So I'm going to go, uh, this, mm. <laughs> uh, I'm going to get to a question in a moment with you. So you have, <laughs> you have this rich process or use of the story system mm. to understand how we're behaving, but then you're also using it to change how we're understanding. So mm. how important is working with story um, and the tools that you can use to affect that, hmm. I think part part of the um, my rationale for the use of those t those different terms was to um, be really clear that the childhood story is immutable. It's not change. It's you can't change that. That that the childhood story, the childhood experience, um, it it was what it was. Whether mm -hmm. it's true or not, that's another whole conversation mm. but actually mm. our perception of what happened is our truth therefore it is our reality and so I get kind of um I, I found I would find myself getting kind of having a reaction when I when I heard people talking about changing the story because it feels so important to actually honor the childhood experience the childhood story that, that that's we're not changing that story so you could say it's semantics around the use of language, but that's part of the reason why I then kind of wanted to isolate that as in a particular way and then change the, the use of language to talk about old internal narratives and new internal narratives because they are different. Um, and in a way, the, the old internal narratives about the self, you know, you'll hear people, um, I mean, you must come across this all the time around... Um, in coaching around people who who fundamentally have a b belief about the self that they're not good enough um, and they're battling against that all the time for example a lot of women actually a lot so of women yeah yeah, yeah let's yeah. just name it a lot of women. <laughs> yeah, yeah it's mostly women that I welcome to win having um, that narrative yeah so that that I would just I would um, be listening for that as uh, and I would how I would interpret that is that that's an old internal narrative, mm. not good enough, that got laid mm. down as a result of the childhood story and the childhood experience. So what we want to do there is we want to actually shift from not good enough to absolutely good enough, more than good enough, you know, mm. or a, a new internal narrative that um, that works for that individual person. And I think, you know, you can 
you can I, I have found in my coaching that you know a number of different levels and layers to coaching of course and um I don't necessarily go straight to childhood story um in fact I would rarely go straight to childhood story unless someone's coming with that explicitly but if as a result of the initial coaching work that I would do together with somebody um the behaviors are not shifting the the old internal narratives are coming back and back and back they're mm. they're stubborn because they are stubborn they are, and they're persi- yeah. persistent mm. and um and so on that would be an indicator to me that actually we need to do something a bit deeper we need to look at what what, what are the roots of that old internal narrative what's mm. the story that sits behind it it's like on so honor the story but change the meaning yes yes because there's some work to do to mm. um to honor the child too mm. you know actually it's um it's very poignant actually and very profound just how hard many so many adults are on 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 their childhood self mm. you know but blaming the child feeling responsibility feeling responsible for the parents divorce <laughs> Mm. Um, you know that 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 can get laid down very easily, for example, and then um, really blaming that child, being very critical about the child, the teenager, the the adolescent. So there's sometimes and often um, some work to do to actually honour that child, mm. um, to to recognise that the child did the best that they could in the circumstances mm. that they were in. I, I find that I find that a beautiful point actually to reflect on because my own my own journey has been to think that if you can't love yourself, you really find it hard to love other people fully and completely. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's a kind of love for the world when you make peace with and love yourself mm. because it, it makes you that much happier, makes you, gives you so much more capacity. I found to, to give that kindness out and to be the best for, version of yourself and, you know, I, I certainly have felt like when I've done some work, I, I've done a, a psychedelic retreat in Amsterdam. I went and worked, did something uh, with uh, psilocybin and it was a, a three-day retreat and it was, it was a fantastic experience. And I think one of the key things that came up from me and I'm looking and observing specifically other men in that retreat who were, many of them were multimillionaires, were, had significant success. Like, you know, societal society would look at them and say, big success, right? Mm. And to a man, they were saying that I need to learn to love myself. Yeah, I need to learn to hug myself, and that hugging, I felt certainly myself was the child version of myself. Was like it's okay to, you know, to say and, and embrace myself and say it's okay. I, mm. I got this, and I think certainly for my own journey has been to say, you know, I think maybe what I've experienced with that shadow play in myself has been to say, well, it's okay young William, <laughs> you know, adult mm. William's got this. Yeah. You don't absolutely. have to come and, you know, be scared or bring all of that. Um, yes. Yeah. That, that, that emotion I can, as an adult, take this on and, and be more level headed. It yeah. doesn't always work. Cause I think there no. are definitely trigger moments <laughs> for me where I, unfortunately that does happen, but I, just again, observing those others and observing myself. Yeah. I, I that has certainly been, the journey. So I'm glad that we're talking about this, honouring the story, changing the meaning, and and yeah, and 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 recognising 
that there is a child to be loved. <laughs> we should all try and do that. Yeah, and to be redeemed as well. You know, there's a mm. there's an aspect of redemption and compassion in this in this work. Um, um, so um, it's tender work. It's tough work too. And I, but I think, I think that um, I remember we mentioned David Cantor at the beginning of the conversation and um david would always say if you're in the room with a leader you're in the room with the leader's childhood story <laughs> the childhood story is in there with you whether whether you like it or not um mm. and then so then there's a there's a there's a choice then around whether or not to go there or not on the part of the coach and also on the part of the leader mm. and so often i think you know we we train a lot of coaches in this work and so often um the hesitation or the the concern or the worry about going there, about daring to ask a leader about their childhood story, is in the coach. Uh, it's not in the. It's not in the leader. Mm. Um, uh, I, I remember the first time I asked a very senior leader about their childhood story. My heart rate was at about two hundred. I thought I was going to pass <laughs> out, but he he just kind of was like fantastic. I think he said something like, "You know, fantastic question," and off we went. Yeah. So um, I think there's more scope and potential um mm. to do this work so back to my psychedelic retreats maybe, yeah. may, maybe thinking like oh wow that sounds a bit far out there but mm. you know i think the reason it's such a powerful um tool to work with is because it allows you in a short period of time to really lower some of the barriers that we have mm. up and it allows mm. us to sort of become and, and they do it and the people i did was called they're called synthesis and um mm. they're an amazing retreat and they have a very um they do work with John Hopkins and UCL. So it's mm. in, a, in a very structured situation. Um, but it allows us to be brave, to yes. your point, like to bravery, to step into a lot of these topics that yes. we're otherwise holding deep inside. Yes. Um, I know from my own experience was to cry profusely for like about an hour. Mm. Um, and it came out of nowhere. And in a room full of complete strangers to cry is quite shameful in many ways, particularly for a man. Yeah. And so you're sort of you're trying to embrace all of these types of experiences and feelings that you're having, but at the same time trying, trying to show courage. And that courage is something I feel, that's why I talk about it, I can share with others now and be like, you know what, I've been through this, this was my experience. Yes. It's okay to have a breakdown, to like feel like you need to be built up again. That's okay. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think um, this, the, that uh, ability to express vulnerability is such a strength and i think it's it, it's 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 um experienced by others around you as a strength although of course in the moment in the in the moment of the breakdown or you know or the the expression of the vulnerability it feels anything anything but strong <laughs> mm. um and so on so i think it is an, a real act of act of courage um to mm. be able to express that I, that vulnerability. I, you've used the word vulnerability, and 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 I know mm. it's it's something that comes out in your in your work as well, and in the book, and um, it's something I'd like to sort of you know sort of double click on a bit and and explore with you because you know I see in my own work as a headhunter and the selector of talent, I see actually vulnerability as being a key indicator of talent um, mm. because I've come to believe that it it, rec it, it engenders trust mm. because the more vulnerable we can be with others, the more they feel they can bring their authentic self to the conversation. And that authentic self, as you start to exchange with each other authentically, you start to develop trust naturally because you feel like there is less um, facade 
and and that, and so I wonder what your thoughts are on the importance yeah of vulnerability in that regard in in sort of the successful leaders you've seen have you seen this as a a, a something in in leaders you've worked with definitely um because I, I I think it also the vulnerability it it very much links to authenticity mm. to the gravitas of a leader the way um a leader walks into the room you know that that gravitas that leadership presence so the willingness to be real <laughs> um to be willing to say when one doesn't know or to be able to express a feeling um i think is so important because mm. of that um demonstration of authenticity yeah and yet i i also have kind of huge empathy for leaders because uh, leaders who are have a concern about um demonstrating any form of vulnerability because um of a fear that it will be perceived as weakness mm. um and i hear time and time again um concern being expressed about it being career limiting or um potentially even professional suicide to um uh, engage in uh coaching that would um maybe take take that person into this mm. sort of territory so mm. it's um Oh yeah, it's challenging. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I, I have no doubt. I mean, again, there is a yin and a yang to vulnerability. Mm -hmm. There is a mm. to some vulnerability will be seen as in a truly authentic and warming and endearing quality. To mm. others, it will be a sign of weakness that they feel they should exploit and um, you to use against you. Yeah. Um, I have absolutely no doubt those people exist. I know they exist. Mm. I, I've seen them operate in organisations, um, but. For me, it's like this, this. It's still worth going to because vulnerability is a form of humility, and humility is that route mm. to to so much learning, to this opportunity of opening up a potential for new for new growth. Um, and it's only there in humility because if we lock ourselves in the ego, we lock ourselves in a you know a certain sense of I am, I am strong. Nobody, no, I, I will never be wrong. Well, that's that's such a road to destruction in my in my opinion. Yes, absolutely. And of course, as we're talking, I'm thinking, well, for those for whom vulnerability is a no-go, um, there'll be a childhood story hmm. at the back of that. You know, think about how many children, men especially, boys and men especially, are told, don't cry. Yeah. You know, don't cry, be strong. Hmm. Um, you know, face up to the bullies or, you know... All of that, all of mm. that messaging, and if that has been very, very strong and modelled very, very powerfully in through those uh, identity forming years, um, it's quite a big ask then to ask a senior leader, successful senior leader, to um, to uh, to change that. Mm. <laughs> and yet, actually, if that leader looks out around them, they may find that some of their relationships are not as good as they could be because that's missing from their repertoire. So actually they would be expanding their leadership range, their behavioural range, by um, integrating that into their leadership. So even more yeah. successful, even more genius. Even more genius. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. I am entirely with you. And that's when I thought of actually Elon Musk, back to him when he was on the Joe Rogan show and he broke down and cried. Mm. And I thought that was a beautiful moment because I'm like, that is human. 
I mean, I'm notorious for getting a bit teary at the weirdest situation where any sort of like, you know, like kind of lovely, intense emotion takes place between people. Even in a working situation, somebody gives me a compliment and I'm feeling the love and I get a bit teary. I'm like, oh, damn it, Will, why are you getting teary now? (laughs) Uh, um, But I think actually that's why in so many ways I prefer working with women because I feel like women are so much more comfortable with their emotions and Although, obviously, a lot of women are trying to hide that in the workplace because I think maybe it shows weakness. But I would mm. say it's actually really endearing and it's really, you know, authentic. And um, and it allows us to feel to be both positively emotional and negatively, you know. So, <laughs> and, and I'm really with you on that. And then I'm, I'm smiling because um, I'm thinking, you know, that... So there's a congruence in 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 our and a connection between yours and my model. You know, our model of how we see the world, world mm. of how we, um, of what we value, of the behaviours that we prefer. Um, but I'm also thinking about other listeners to the show and um, who might be thinking, "Are you crazy? <laughs> like, you, you're kidding me! What? You're asking me to be vulnerable?" You are crazy. <laughs> Do you know what? I've, I've heard it. Absolutely. I, I am um, in, in my, me- I teach uh, a method for um, how to, how to hire. And, and a part of my, my method for running good interviews, I, I start with introduction. And as part of my method for the introduction story that we tell about ourselves, I, I really encourage people to tell about a low moment in their life. Mm. Um, and that, and particularly professionally. And then as mm. the interviewer to the interviewee, they tell a, a professional low moment and how they recovered from that. Mm. And I remember teaching this to a, a German uh, manager and he flat told me, William, we do not talk about personal things mm. in our culture. And, mm. I, and I had to, so I was like, okay. And I said, so just for a moment, think of the best leader you worked with and for. What was it about that leader that really defined them as being fantastic? And he ended up telling me a story how somebody on their construction site was crushed by a falling mm. material and was paralyzed below the waist. So it was a you know, horrific industry. This happens in construction environments a lot, unfortunately. And he said the way that that leader dealt with that person, he welcomed them back in. He showed himself to be like concern for his family, concern for the individual. He opened up a space where that person could, you know, recover like fully. And I started talking to him this room. We're talking to him. I'm like, well, you so far haven't told me anything about sort of, you've talked just about something very personal, very vulnerable from like this, this mm. low moment. And, I, and, I, and we kept going with it. And, it, and he, he had this moment of realization that actually that the, the the personal story that we share, that the vulnerability is actually what we want in a manager. When we are down low, we want to know we can go to a leader and say, this is where my problem is because Mm -hmm. I can't perform for you in this corporate world because all of this other underlying um, uh, support networks are starting to crumble. And that requires, you know, this, this, this vulnerability, these emotions. And, and, Mm -hmm. and so that's why I say show people, in your introduction, that you are human, that you've had low moments, and it will allow them to share that about themselves. And then you have a more authentic conversation taking place. Mm. So I, I, um, I'm also been called a new age headhunter. I'll take that. <laughs> um, but I hope through the li- people listening to this, if they're not quite convinced, may use that story and also the things that you shared as 
as a way to see the power in authenticity and vulnerability and mm. yeah, just being being who we are, right? Mm. I remember being um, at a, a three-day dialogue, which was being um, facilitated by someone called Skip Griffin. He's um, executive director and coach at um, a company called Dialogos. Um, and he was very um, involved in civil rights um, movement. And um, he had come to the UK, this is quite a number of years ago, he'd come to the UK and he was facilitating this three-day dialogue to explore his experiences of the civil rights movement for a book that he was writing. And he asked me on the first day, he handed me a piece of paper and said, um, would you mind reading this at a point during the during the session when I ask you, would you mind reading this? I thought, yeah, that's fine. I can read it. I can read. <laughs> that's fine. <laughs> I got this. <laughs> and, <laughs> I got this. Um, I, didn't, we did, I didn't know him at all, um, meeting for the first time. And it was a group of about 20 people. And um, I read through what was there and it was it was um very powerful experience a woman talking about um a particular experience and it resonated so much with some of my own experiences mm. of um you know carrying an untold story around with myself and the um about myself and the the, the burden that that had created and so on anyway um uh the moment came where he asked me to read it out <laughs> and i started to cry as I was reading it. And during those three days, I'm not kidding you, I couldn't stop crying. <laughs> <laughs> Every time I'd sort of, you know, not, I wasn't sobbing the whole time, but I yeah. seemed to have tears rolling down my cheeks for the entire three days. And, um, and every time I'd sort of, that would start to ease back, suddenly Skip would be sat next to me and I'd sort of feel the support of his presence and I'd stop crying again and I remember a moment I was so embarrassed you mm. know there was a lot of um, mm. people I didn't know people from corporate environments people from public sector not-for-profit environments and so on I was so embarrassed and um, I remember at a point on the day three or something Skip was talking and he leaned uh, he was sitting next to me again <laughs> and um he um he leaned across and he was talking to the group and he said we were talking about courage he said courage i'll show you courage and he leaned over to me and he said this is courage pointed pointed to me this is courage this will willingness to express vulnerability um Hmm. to express the sadness and the grief and to let it go mm. um and that was a phenomenal moment and um and at the end of the three-day dialogue i had a kind of queue of people lined up waiting to thank me for what they'd learned and i i was still at that stage feeling really mortified i understand mm. it now but at the time Whoa. i was like oh my days <laughs> this is that's terrible a that's a beautiful story I mean, that's got me a bit teary right now so you've um <laughs> i i think that is courage actually and mm. i think as you were telling me that story i remember back to my my experience at the synthesis retreat and mm. i remember how the tears came for me and it, it was mm. a, it was actually it first started with just somebody showing like kindness to me and yes i i i had a I had a I sort of big experience going to going on to the retreat, and it was sort of there's like a lot of build up and an experience, and you know you're kind of nervous and, and everything starts coming out, and I couldn't sleep, and I meditated, and then the morning after we have a we have a ceremony, and I remember just experiencing someone placing their hand on me. So one of the the, the facilitators, two of the facilitators, she's like the shaman sort of slash doctor, and she just showed me kindness by placing her hand on my heart and just saying, you know, you know, it's okay. 
And mm. I just broke down in tears. And yes. I cried, as I was yes. explaining earlier, I cried solidly for about an hour. But it was every time somebody showed me more kindness, it made me <laughs> yes. cry even more. And I was like, oh my yeah. gosh. Um, but I, I felt such relief after that. And funny we're talking mm. about crying because I actually last night listened to a podcast with um, Sam Harris and Ricky Gervais. They've recently done one mm. called Absolutely Mental. And they talk about crying and how they mm. both cry a lot. And yeah. you know, Ricky Gervais shares the story how he cries at the, the scene in Dumbo where Dumbo, <laughs> the mother cradles Dumbo. Yes. In, and he said, that it makes me cry every single time. And, and yes. um, Sam Harris shared about how he was reading Harry Potter and that made him cry. And, yes. and I thought, isn't it? I mean, these are two men, and I'm like, we don't hear this enough from men, mm. this idea of, you know, mm. vulnerability, and it's okay to mm. express these emotions. And so mm. I'm, and I think this is something actually I want to explore a bit more, but I, you know, I'll be off maybe just the one to, to go down. But I, yeah, um, it's wonderful if we could, as, you know, I, I feel in my own work, but you, you're much more experienced in the coaching model to be able to open these spaces up so people can be in those, those modes, right? Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that, Safely. Yeah, safely, mm -hmm. right? So, mm -hmm. yeah, how how do you do that, hey, Sarah? How, how do you start, anybody listening who thinks, I'd like to go and do that, but I don't ever want to be crying every session. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but how do, you, how do you open up those spaces? Because we're talking about a lot of time, we're talking about leadership coaching here. We're talking about, mm. we're not talking about therapy. We're talking, Yeah. I mean, like, absolutely. personally, I've got a bit of an issue with everybody keeps saying, oh, well, you know, I remember reading a review to your book, someone saying, well, you know, you need to be a trained therapist to go to these topics. And mm. I'm like, well, you know, what a hell, I mean, I've, I've met trained consultants and doctors who I really wouldn't let look after my, my hamster, let alone myself. <laughs> so training is training, but, you know, excellence is excellence in, in a topic. So, mm. okay, put that to one side, but yeah, so how, <laughs> yeah. how, how do you, yeah, how, what's your, you know, what do you want to talk about? Do you want to talk a bit about coaching versus therapy and child mm. story work and et cetera, and, and creating those safe spaces? Yeah, it's definitely an, um, a question that gets asked often. It's about, you know, are you asking coaches to be therapists here? Um, and um, I'm not, but I, I am asking coaches to be willing to, to, to um, be able to work with a, a leader um, in this kind of territory. Um, so work with them behaviorally to have a model for and a practice and supervision and all of those things to be able to ask a question like, where did you learn to behave like that? Mm. To be able to go to formative experience because of the impact that that formative experience is having on the um, on the leader in the here and now. Um, so I, I understand the concern. Um, I you know there's a whole we could we could do a whole hour talking about therapy versus coaching coaching versus therapy <laughs> in some ways you know one one of the ways that I think about it is that there's there's therapy in coaching and there's coaching in therapy um, and so on and um, I think I, I'm not a critic of um, therapy at all um, I think there can be a stigma around um, um, going for therapy particularly in a leadership context so and particularly um, in the uk and europe maybe more yeah, more than in absolutely. the us but yeah, yeah 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 absolutely anything that i say about um coaching the childhood story if there was a trained therapist with us in this conversation they would say they would probably likely say well yes that's that's i do that <laughs> in my practice too um it's about your model i think mm. um and and i would also say in coaching the childhood story, we don't dwell on the story. We don't get stuck in the story. 
we're really drawing on data from the childhood story in order to inform the current behavioural context or behavioural challenge that the leader is working with. It is a relational approach and yet childhood story work can happen in a 10-minute conversation or it can happen over uh, many sessions over many years, actually. Mm. There's a wide spectrum. I've definitely worked with leaders where I've had one conversation with them and they have gone on to talk openly about how that one conversation unlocked something, enabled a mm. transformation or change of, um, of some kind um, and gave them what they were looking for and needing to make some more, you know, uh, behavioral changes mm. um, but then I as I say I, I also work with leaders over an extended period of time depends yeah. what's in the story you know the extent of the of the abuse for example that people might have experienced or encountered how stuck some of the behavioral patterns are um, you mm. know those old internal narratives they they are very stubborn very persistent yeah well I I, I hear that and I, I certainly know in reading your book um, that it gave me a model just through reading it to think about my own version of scarcity. And it gave me just a, a hint to why maybe I was reacting as I do around mm. money in some modes. And I was thinking, where have I seen that fear of scarcity? I grew up with not a lot of money mm. in a family, not a lot of money. So I was like, ah, oh, okay, mm. well, no wonder there I am back as a child worried about money. Mm. Here I am as an adult worried about money. Mm. You know how how is one informing the other and it's easy for us if we're you know you know self-reflective enough to like you said just have that one question so it doesn't have to be this huge deep exploration Absolutely. but it but it can be something more if you want mm. um i before we finish up and i'm, I'm mindful of time and I, one of the questions i want to have and we've mentioned his name a few times mm. now and i think his his model is very important so yeah what does david Cantor mean to you and how does he fit within the childhood story work mm. yeah so David um, sadly died just recently, just um, a couple of months ago, um, age 93. He, is a, he was a clinical psychologist, family therapist. He built out his model, um, Structural Dynamics, back in the early 1960s. And what the Structural Dynamics model offers is a way to read what's happening behaviorally, structurally. So mm. what we do is in parallel to listening for content, we also listen for structure. And in his model, he talked about the relevance and impact of the childhood story on behavior. So it was very central to the model. Although I think it'd be fair to say that it was perhaps the least well developed part of um, of the model. And I, I met David uh, when about 10, 11, 11 years ago. Um, I'd been working with his model for years. Um, so I, I, I didn't know him, but I felt like I knew him. <laughs> I would use his name often talking about, about his model, introducing his model, um, whether it was when I was working in prisons or working in tech companies or wherever it, wherever it may have been. Um, and I finally got to meet him, as I say, about 10 or 11 years ago. And, and he became a co my coach and mentor. I became executive director at the Cantor Institute after a period of time. So got very involved in the work. I think whilst I had been working with his model, he opened all sorts of windows onto the model that I hadn't previously seen that are not so widely known about. And um, my colleague um, in the company that we co-owned, Tony Melville and I, set about making that structural dynamics model more accessible to more people mm. and playing a part in training others um, in, that, in that model. On a personal level, he 
He was like the longed for parent that any unhappy child is seeking at the end of a waiting at the end of a street. Um, you know, for me, he he really was that. He was kind and um, generous. He was incredibly frustrating as well. <laughs> he was hugely hugely <laughs> creative and hundreds had hundreds of ideas and and so on. Um, but um, a special person, a special leader, um, a special thought leader, um, and um, huge influencer. And I, I don't think his model has had as much recognition as it deserves. Um, and so I'm very committed mm. to um, playing a part in ensuring the legacy of his ideas. Um, and so the, the, the My Childhood Story model links very closely to um, his structural dynamics model. The two things are integrated, really. Mm. Thank you. That, I actually, you recommended reading The Room to me, and um, I've, I've started diving into that, and I think the opening few pages are fantastic already. So mm. I, um, and I certainly know from, from one thing I found very helpful within this childhood story like mode, model that you're creating, that you, you do have a structure that we can utilize to sort of, it almost tempers this sort of strong emotional situation by giving us a nice structure to say, well, I know in your in your in the book you you exemplified this one that was really helpful for me, which is the, um, the the conversational structure, which is move, follow, oppose, bystand. Mm. And I suppose it's within that that kind of conversational framework that you can start to see well how am I acting differently when these childhood stories come in, right? So yes. maybe would you just explain a little bit while we can just about um, move, follow, oppose, and bystand? I think it'll help listeners maybe understand that model, and of course, then they can dive into your book and the other work to to find out more if they're interested. Sure. Yeah. So the move, follow, oppose, bystand are the vocal acts or the action propensities. Um, so you can literally, you can code any conversation just using those four uh, vocal acts. Um, and so a move initiates or sets the direction. So an example of that would be, let's start the meeting. Um, a follow um, provides support and completion to a move that's been made. So that might sound like, good plan, I'll take the notes. And oppose uh, provides correction and challenge. Mm. So we might hear someone say, before we begin, we might want to think about switching the order of the agenda. And then a bystand provides perspective and connects different views. Mm. So there, we, that might sound like, it seems like we aren't sure whether to dive right in or spend time reorganizing the agenda. Mm. Mm. Now, the vocal tone um, changes when we're in high stakes. So if you have a tendency to make moves when you're in high stakes, people around you might experience you as being dictatorial, pushy, impatient. Da, 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 da. <laughs> um, if you tend to follow when you're in high stakes, there you might be experienced as being quite weak, mm. placating, overly compliant, not really able to generate ideas of your own. If you tend to oppose when you're in high stakes, you might be seen as rude, overly critical, attacking or contrary, judgmental. Experience those people, yep, definitely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you tend to bystand when you're in high mm. stakes, you might come across as being disengaged, withdrawn, holding yourself as superior or aloof in some way, sort of separate. Mm. Um, so... That just gives an example of, of how you can begin to just use those simple four vocal mm. acts to read what's happening behaviorally um, in the room. Um, and where the child's story can come in is, um, it, um, if you were to look at my profile historically, it's not it's not true now, but 
but historically you'd have seen me using a pose very rarely mm. you know avoiding it mm. um and in a certain context i would i became a bit of a stuck follower so i would just follow 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 mm. now i'm a stuck mover so i just move <laughs> i like to make moves all the time <laughs> so i have to watch that yeah. because if i fill the room and fill the space with my moves then i'm not giving anyone else a chance to speak up i'm not i'm not getting the benefit of other people's moves and so on mm. so that's just a whistle stop tour through um, action propensities that's a beautiful set of examples. No, thank you. And I think I'm sure people listening will think, oh my God, that meeting, I can experience that. And I know in the in the book, you there are a number of leaders who talk about their own experiences and you do a working with them. Um, and then I think if you marry that up with reading The Room, uh, David Kenzer's book, you can start to see how, yes, how that how those situations unfold. And then it's, I want, you know, why are we acting like this? How are we acting like this? Can we change this behavior for the good of the group, right? Um, that's really fantastic, and I, I love that. Thank you, David Cantor's first book, um, which was written with William Lear, who did the, who did they did the research together, was is called Inside the Family, mm. and that's um, that's the book that actually um, presents the research um, that they did to generate this model around structural dynamics. They created the model out of that research, so it's interesting. It's there in the in the title of the book, Inside the Family. Mm. Um, you know the the um our the preferences that we have behaviorally get laid down early on and and you you've sort of evolved this story work by also the child story by also creating a a journaling system right yes you have a a journal that you've created where you can start to and you call it dare to is that correct mm, um, yes okay and dare to is the way that you start to re-architect or recreate this, the sort of meaning of those stories? Yes, that journal is an accompanying resource that we would use alongside coaching. But it, but people do use it independently of coaching too. Mm. So people who've read the book, Where Did You Learn to Behave Like That? And then um, use the, the Dare To journal to, to do some self-exploration and, um, and reflective work. It's filled with um, uh, reflective questions and um exercises quotes from people that um have, have been doing story work themselves and and so on so it's a it's really a resource to support the story work okay mm. well now we're coming towards the end of our time and um i've greatly enjoyed learning so far and being on this journey with you thank you so much i um i always like to ask this question of authors though is um so what has what has changed in your thinking since writing the book if anything about about the model and the way that you do it yeah, it's interesting. I, there are a couple of things that have been reinforced, I think, m more so <laughs> than anything. You can um, answer it like that I if think, you want. Um, yeah, go on then. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I, I, you know, maybe at some point I'll, I'll write a second edition, but I wish I'd been even clearer about the part that old internal narratives play in keeping the impact of the childhood story alive. Mm. I was so stuck in, you know, some traumatic experiences that I had couldn't shake them off you know it was like just carry carrying them around in the background not you know not in the foreground but carrying them around in the background mm. and so every time I told myself you know one of my old internal narratives it would bring that experience back in so um I think I'd like to have been even clearer about that um because that's the that's where the work is and um the importance then of not only being able to articulate the new internal narratives, but really go to work on how to live them, mm. um, how to enact them, how to embody them, and all the peace and ease and confidence um, and excellence 
um, and gravitas that comes as a result of doing that. Um, but it's not easy work. I, I, I get frustrated sometimes when people say, oh, it's, you know, soft, fluffy stuff. It's not. It's, it's at the tough end. Christ, anybody who thinks this is soft, fluffy work has got some... Uh, let's, let's get them in a couple of sessions, see how they feel after that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. But And that's partly why I, I then um, created the Dare To Journal, mm. because the Dare To Journal um, um, provides more support. Um, to ma- be making that transition, doing the work to make the transition from being able to articulate the new internal narratives to being able to live them. Fantastic. So um, finishing up now, um, and, and I'm respectful of your time, I, I always love, again, one of my, my key questions, I'll just say what, what three books have influenced your thinking so far? I mean, I know we've talked a bit about reading the room, yes. um, but um, do you have any other books that you love? And that can be anything. It could be fiction. It could be you know a business book or, or poetry, whatever you like. Yeah, um, so the first one is a bit of a surprise to me. But when I was thinking about this, I thought, gosh, yes, that book did really impact me. And it's a a book by someone called Clark Mistakis, and it's called Heuristic Research. And it was when I was doing my PhD, and I was immersed in, I'd done quasi-ethnographic collaborative research, um, and I was swimming in data. And then... um, trying to um, think about how to analyze that data. And I just by chance found this book about heuristic research. And the bit that really stands out for me is the importance of um, immersing yourself in data, immersing yourself in experience and allowing it to incubate. (laughs) So you kind of like walk around with it (laughs) and that it... um, the, the analysis starts to almost happen by itself in a way. Anyway, that book has, um, and that whole idea about heuristics and incubation and immersion has featured so in so many different ways in my work over the years, because that's going back to the sort of mid-1990s. Well, I love a heuristic, um, so I am got to check that one out. That sounds fantastic. <laughs> mm, very um, interesting. Another one would be a book called A Path With Heart, which is by Jack Cornfield. And the reason that this was so influential for me was that um, it was um, my first introduction to mindfulness practice and the importance of presence and um, and an introduction to the Buddhist teachings. And it doesn't sort of hev- heavily cover Buddhist philosophy, but it's just a really practical, accessible mm. book, which I found myself as I was reading it, turning down the corners of the pages. And then I realized I... I would just be turning down the corner of every single every single page, but I just loved it. Um, so, a path with heart by Jack Cornfield, mm. and then the third one would be um, uh, dialogue and the art of thinking together by William Isaacs, um, and this was kind of huge for me. Um, discovering um, dialogue um, as part of cultural change work. Um, this is again going back to the sort of early 2000s when I was um, doing this work in prisons in the criminal justice system here in the UK and also in the US, um, using dialogue as part of a change methodology, bringing people together who don't generally come and talk and think together, mm. bringing, actively bringing them together to be part of the change effort and so on. I could say more, but it's a, it's a fantastic book and uh, really opened a door to me um, in terms of what I do today, introduced me to um, David Cantor's model of structural dynamics because it's described in there, but also said so much more about the importance of dialogue and, and what that really means. Mm. 
fantastic book. Wonderful. What a wonderful three selections you give me. It, it, may I ask, is Buddhism part of your, your life? Is that sort of something you... Yes, it became part of my life. Mm. Yeah, very much in the last 20 years. Mm. Yeah, but I've um, attended many retreats and, you know, just the part that that, that, that mindfulness practice plays mm. in presence and, and also in part um, in healing some of the harm from mm. the past. That's one of the, yeah, I must say, I, um, Buddhism for busy people was one of the first introductions I've had to it as a, mm. as a mode. And, and I think Stoicism and Buddhism has sat with me as two, two philosophies, two ways of life, which mm. I find great great comfort in and great wisdom and great guidance and it's kind of saying you know suffering exists but there's also things like um impermanence so we don't have to you know live in that suffering you know there's an impermanence to it Mm. so yeah i mean there's there's again there's so much that we could say about (laughs) that about that yes but yeah dr sarah hill (laughs) i feel that is a wonderful place for us to leave our conversation maybe to follow up in another one at some future point because i have thoroughly enjoyed the chat with you today thank you so much for sharing your your story your wisdom your your model and i would encourage those out there if they're interested in finding you um they can find you on your website which is dialogics.co.uk there we go and um also linkedin mm-hmm. and other places like that right and they can find a bit mm-hmm. more about your work and the name of the book again for those out there is where did you learn to behave like that uh, and i will be putting some links in the show notes and such so that you can find you um so again sarah thank you so much for your time it's been an absolute pleasure thank you <laughs> So if you enjoyed this episode, please remember to subscribe or leave a review on wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us. So thank you very much. We also have a newsletter on our website, talentequals.com. So you can keep up to date with all of the things we're doing here at Talent Equals and the amazing guests that we have coming up this year.